You are now listening to a podcast made in collaboration with the Copenhagen College Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 55 of the Social Media and Politics podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, political scientist at the University of Copenhagen. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter at SMNP Podcast or swing by our website, socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Siva Vadhyanathan. He is a professor in media studies at the University of Virginia and an expert on digital technology. He has written plenty of books on the subject, and today we're going to discuss his latest. It is called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, published by Oxford University Press. And I think the book does a really good job of exploring the different ways that social media and digital platforms are really intertwined in our lives, from everything from our attention and our pleasure to protest and politics, and really picks up on a lot of the recent controversies around um, Facebook advertising in the 2016 election, um, disinformation, Russian trolls, all of these things. And even though the book is academic, it's highly accessible. Um, I think anyone who's listening to the podcast and has an interest in this topic would enjoy it. And it's the type of book that you could bring with you on a plane or bring to the beach and not really have to dig so deep into the you know empirical data. But I think there's a lot of valuable critiques in the book about social media and about its impact on politics and society that Dr. Vadinathan and I are going to discuss in this upcoming interview. So I'm going to go ahead and cut right to that interview. There is a live stream of it up on our Facebook page, Social Media and Politics Podcast. And once again, my guest is Dr. Siva Vadhyanathan. He is a professor in media studies at the University of Virginia, and the book is called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Dr. Vadhyanathan, thanks so much for taking the time out. Welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast. It's my pleasure. It's it's really great to be here in beautiful Copenhagen. Yeah, and, and happy to welcome you. So throughout the book, you paint quite a critical picture of social media, and Facebook in particular, by pointing out a number of areas where Facebook affects our lives, whether that's our pleasure, our attention, and even our politics. And your critique is really unrelenting, I think, uh, from cover to cover. And so why did you decide to write the book now, at this point in time? Because you mentioned you're a longtime social media adopter, going back to Friendster. Right. Um, (laughs) And I was wondering if there's anything in particular that kind of triggered you to come out with this critique. Yeah. um, My country selected a president who didn't win the popular vote, and we were all trying to figure out why that happened. And so uh, I decided to write the book uh, a couple of weeks after the election. It was November 2016. I had a friend visiting me uh, who had been a magazine editor for many years, uh, very politically active and astute, and had edited some of the you know biggest, boldest stories of our last couple of decades. And he he was in the same funk uh, that so many of us were in, uh, just trying to figure out what the heck just happened, uh, how a person could lose an election by three million votes and become president how a person could seemingly not run a campaign, you know, and yet still come close to winning the popular vote and and actually, you know, win the electoral vote. It seemed to completely throw out so many of our trusted assumptions watching politics for 40 years. So as we were talking, I started talking about how well the Trump campaign used Facebook, um, that they were quite explicit about the fact that Facebook was their primary advertising platform. They were not interested in television. They were not interested in radio. And American political coverage is all about television spending. You know, like who's up in you know what state, right? Um, in October, Hillary Clinton started buying ads in Arizona. So like that was the big story. Hillary Clinton spreads the map, is up on the air in Arizona, and you know she wasn't up on the air in Michigan <laughs> because she thought Michigan was a lock. Mm. Uh, nonetheless. We weren't able to see what was going on in Facebook, right? But political reporters with their standard toolkit and their standard lenses were not watching Facebook, nor could they. I mean, the fact is Trump was buying ad after ad after ad, highly targeted, very specialized, doing A-B testing on small groups of voters. He was doing it in a select handful of states. I mean, no one there thought – uh, no one in the Trump campaign thought they were going to win. But they figured if we could win, you know, that we're only going to be able to do it because – 
we were able to move small packets of voters uh, either from the Hillary Clinton column into non-voters or move some non-voters into the Trump column, uh, you know, the voting column. And to do that, they had to, you know, very precisely hit voters' interests or obsessions or obligations or prejudices. And Facebook is perfect for that. You can target an ad in a group as small as 20 people. You can use all sorts of profiling techniques that Facebook gives campaigns, you know, straight up. Like you could actually do these checkboxes on all sorts of attributes from ethnicity to interest in knitting to education level to, uh, you know, to, to geography uh, in ways that, you know, every advertiser obviously uh, relishes, which is why Facebook makes so much money in advertising, right? So Trump's people were not political people. They were not political veterans, political campaign people. He had web marketers. <laughs> he had people who were experts at putting ads up on Facebook. And, and that's exactly what they did. So uh, I was explaining all this to my friend and saying, you know, this is how you move between 1,000 and 70,000 votes in Michigan, between 1,000 and 70,000 votes in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, which is all it really took, a total of 80,000 votes across those three states put Donald Trump in the White House and is, you know, destroying NATO and, you know, <laughs> causing all of this other trouble in the world that's so crazy. That's all it took. I mean, that's what's so insane about the system. Uh, Florida, which could have decided the election, uh, went to Trump by 110,000 votes. So you can imagine that having that sort of precision is really powerful when a state is that close, right? So explaining all this, my friend said, you really need to write this book. And the fact is I had been gathering studies and perspectives and information for a number of years, largely because I teach classes on privacy and other classes on intellectual property and other classes on digital media in general. Uh, and so, you know, whenever an important issue would come up, I would create a file and pour all of these studies and articles into them. Uh, so I, I essentially had in my hard drive, in my Evernote file, if anyone uses <laughs> Evernote, it's like my basic go-to tool these days. I had all these Evernote files that essentially worked out to be chapters of this book. It's like, and so, you know, when I decided to write the proposal, it was, hey, I can explain a whole lot of what just happened, but I want to go beyond that. Because by the time the book comes out, the Donald Trump victory will have been heavily analyzed and I can't necessarily add that much more to it. But if I can connect how Facebook works to the rise of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, if I can connect it to Narendra Modi in India, if I can talk about how it's being used and abused in places like Kazakhstan, in places like Ukraine, in places like Estonia, uh, you know, we could get somewhere. And I thought, I want to write the global story. I want to talk about how Facebook in its core attributes is the problem and how contrary to the message we had been telling ourselves since 2011, it's actually working to undermine democracy rather than promote it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the parts that I really enjoyed about the book was this really global focus. And I, I want to pick up on that a bit later, but I want to kind of go a bit before Facebook. And um, you don't necessarily make the argument that all digitally mediated communication is bad for democracy. Right. Because in particular, you highlight the blogging era in the sort of early mid-2000s. as the a golden age. Yeah, <laughs> as a time that should be looked back with uh, quote-unquote nostalgic reverence. So right. can you describe why that era of political blogging differs from the types of political expression we see today on Facebook and other platforms? Yeah, I mean, we should hesitate before we declare anything a golden age, even though I just sort of did tongue-in-cheek. Um, look, uh, most media systems around the world for about 100 years were uh, highly concentrated and offered limited voices, you know, limited perspectives. Very few people could say what they thought about the world through our standard television and radio channels and, and printed newspaper channels. So once we hit the mid-90s or a little bit later in much of the world, uh, we're suddenly able to publish. Almost anybody can publish at, at minimal cost, at, at basically zero marginal cost. And that is tremendous. That means by the early 2000s, once there's easy to use content management systems like WordPress, like Blogger, uh, anybody can put forth a fairly professional looking uh, textual document. And that not only allowed people to, with diverse voices, to express themselves around the world, 
it allowed other people to link to those, right? So you get these these webs of links, what we used to call blog roles. Uh, so if you go to a blog that interests you, you can see instantly on the right-hand column eight or nine or 20 other blogs that might also interest you. You can explore those. It creates a lattice of reference and understanding. People had a habit, at least in the political world, a political commentary world, of linking to blogs with whom they disagreed. And there would be interesting dialogues among them. There would be group blogs. You would have a libertarian group blog and uh, you know a, a center-left group blog, and they would have it out over certain issues, right? And they would write essays and link to each other and um, uh, you know, it was a it was a it was a nice model. It didn't change the world, but it was a nice model for how a more open platform can allow for diversity of voices. And because your influence, your popularity, was in many ways still dependent on the friction of a community of engaged and often knowledgeable people. It meant that the nutcases still had limited audience. They were able to find an audience with more ease than they were before the internet, right? Mm. But if you were a crank, chances are the big voices in the blogosphere were not going to link to you more than a couple times. They weren't going to waste their time just making fun of you, right? What changes with social media, at least by about 2010, as the news feed gets really mature in Facebook and, and Twitter by 2014 starts getting more algorithmic, is you get the, the, the big change, which is algorithmic amplification. So at that point, any source of content or any content itself that seems to generate interest, and that interest can be indignation as well as appreciation, that amplifies the presence and reach of that content, uh, you know, almost exponentially. And, and that is a big change. That could not happen the same way. It was human beings making individual decisions in the blogosphere. Once you have algorithms measuring responses that are as simple as a thumbs up or a click or a like or a comment and quantifying that... That's a totally different game. So it was the shift to the quantification. Also, as soon as Twitter comes up, I mean, I used to run two different blogs, and I'm not the only one who gave up blogging once Twitter showed up because I realized, like, who has the time, right, to maintain – like, maintaining blogs is an incredible obligation. It, uh, it took hours per week, and and I couldn't bore or annoy my readership with – 140 to 280 characters. Like if I was going to write something, they were going to click on my page. They wanted a few hundred words. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, once I realized that Twitter liberated me from having to actually think deeply and write deeply about things, <laughs> <laughs> I took it and many people did too, right? So so the blogosphere emptied out all of the mid-level, like the mid-list blogs like my own basically receded and we started building Twitter followings. I, I don't think that was healthy in the least mm. um, yeah, overall. Uh, so yeah, so in, in many ways, Twitter uh, hurt the blogosphere, but also the blogosphere was just a much richer uh, framework for deliberation. Right. With Twitter even being called in the early days of these platforms, a microblog, yeah. and that's kind of phased out over time, <laughs> right. um, even though the character limit has been increased, right? Which is, which is kind of interesting. I guess we could call blogs the macro Twitters. Yes. Yes. Um, so kind of moving from Twitter, which is is definitely not the platform that's singled out most in the right. book, which is definitely Facebook. And I mean, you talk about tons of different platforms, um, Google, Microsoft, and, and we'll get to that platformization of the, the internet later. Um, but of the five largest digital tech companies, you really label Facebook as the most dangerous. And so I wanted to ask, why is that? What is it about Facebook that makes it so dangerous? Yeah, 2.2 billion people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the simple answer, right? So scale, this is important. Um, when people think about social media platforms, you really have to keep scale in mind. So let's talk about the top seven social media platforms in the world. Two of them exist largely, if not exclusively, in the People's Republic of China, right? So including WeChat, which is the largest in China, uh, has something like 800 million users. It's probably closer to a billion right now. Um, so take out the two that basically operate in in their own domain, right? Because they don't directly compete with Facebook or Twitter or anything like mm -hmm. that, right? So uh, now we're left with five. Of those five going in order, Facebook, 2.2 billion people, YouTube, 1.6 billion people. And then everything else is below a billion. Uh, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, 
and Instagram are the next, right? Those three are all owned by Facebook. Mm -hmm. So Facebook owns four of the top five social media platforms that exist and work outside of the People's Republic of China, right? So so that's pretty stunning, right? And then and just even that number, 2.2 billion, which um, that was the number in February of 2018. It could be as high as 2.4 billion by January of 2019. And the growth is strong. It, it seems to have leveled off in Western Europe and North America, as many things have, but it's still strong in the places in the world where babies are being born and young people are growing into adults. Uh, you know, Indonesia and India and Pakistan and Kenya and Nigeria, uh, you know, places like that are thriving. Brazil, Mexico, uh, in terms of Facebook usage and Facebook adoption. So Facebook is more global than the rest. By the way, Twitter has only 300 million users only. I mean, it sounds like a huge number in like the history of media. Mm -hmm. Like, on any given day, BBC would love to have 300 million right. listeners, you know, but uh, 300 million people, uh, I'm sorry, 300 million accounts are active on Twitter. We don't actually know how many of those are human beings, right? So I often think it's a mistake to group Facebook and Twitter together as part of the same phenomena or phenomenon because Twitter's usage base is so much smaller than Facebook and it works very differently than Facebook and it's reach is largely concentrated in North America and Western Europe. So it's not as important to as many human beings, and it does not shape our perceptions of the world the way that Facebook does. Yeah, and I think I, I saw a statistic recently that estimated 3.2 billion people are on social media globally. So if right. you take into account Facebook's 2.2, it's about two-thirds. Right, and the rest of those are in China. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> behind the, the, right. the great firewall. It's also important to remember that if you're on Twitter, you're probably on Facebook. The, the number of people who have Twitter accounts and don't have Facebook accounts, it's pretty small. It's pretty marginal, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, um, they're probably people who just decided to quit Facebook uh, for some reason, right? But so so it's not like these are um, exclusive things. I mean, that one of the reasons we have to pay attention, like Facebook Messenger is that is one of those top five. But of course, you're on Facebook Messenger if you're on Facebook. So um, for the most part, not necessarily completely, but you know, the, the crossover is, is clear. Yeah. And I mean, that was another interesting point you discuss in the book is this kind of um, – I don't know if you'd call it a, a paradox or interplay between being connected and being disconnected yeah. um, and, and getting a bit philosophical here. Uh, <laughs> one of the kind of recurring points you make in, in the book is that Facebook limits society's search for truth. And if I can summarize that argument, it's basically that Facebook supports tribalism over truth. Um, and can you unpack that argument? Yeah, for yeah, us? sure. Yeah. So, I mean, what Facebook really does, among many other things, is it makes it hard to think collectively. It makes it hard for us to um, uh, to gather groups of differing perspectives, agree on a set of facts about the world, uh, identify a problem, and debate possible paths forward. What I just described uh, is what you know Habermas thought should be happening in coffee shops all <laughs> all over Europe in the in the 15th century, and we all that's the ideal, right? The ideal is that is that people with differing perspectives can at least. Um, work through their differences through the process of politics, deliberation, debate, et cetera, right? That's what, how a public sphere is supposed to work. Facebook could not be farther from that. Now, we don't have an idealized public sphere anywhere, uh, but Facebook pushes us farther from that ideal. And it does that largely by clustering us and rewarding our interests and our prejudices with more things that reflect our interests and prejudices. Its algorithms are designed to reinforce what we've already expressed an interest in and the people with whom we have expressed an interest or to whom we've expressed an interest and the and the 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 sources of content to which we've expressed an interest right so so that narrows our field of vision over time it's not necessarily a left right political thing although that's one way it can be mapped out uh, and it's in, it, it, totally possible for people to purposefully engage with people who differ from them. But those clusters are often interest-based. So they could be based on, you know, bicycling or knitting or reading, uh, as well as any particular political persuasion. But the fact is, everything about Facebook, its advertising platform, its newsfeed algorithms, everything is intended to keep you hooked on Facebook. So, so they want to give you more of what you have clearly shown you care about, and they want to give you less of what they see as irrelevant. Uh, and and how they measure relevance is the key. They measure mm -hmm. relevance based on, you know, those clicks and likes and shares and comments. Not to mention uh, third-party data. Yeah, third-party right. data, which they say they're using less of now, right? They For years, they bought third-party data. 
um, like any other marketing company and fed it into the system to help refine it. And just in 2018, they've said they've stopped doing that. But it makes me wonder, are they scrubbing the system of, mm-hmm. of the data they already bought? I mean, certainly at some point that data becomes stale, but it, it was such a powerful um, tool in setting up their advertising system and in helping newsfeed target content. You know, it, we, we can't just pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I mean, that's... That brings me to the point of transparency, right? There's just an overall lack of transparency with these companies. And, you know, there's been some discussion recently about should they be regulated? Should they be regulated like utilities? Um, With the utility company, you can very clearly see how it operates, right? Right. You can track the flows of natural gas or, you know, whatever. Um, But this black box, is it it makes it very difficult for for us, even who are very interested in this, to know what's going on. Apart from what Facebook says, legislators don't quite understand the technology. So there's a lot of... um, of, of unknowns there. But what I what I want to ask you next about following up on this idea of tribalism or sorting is that uh, I thought it was really interesting how you discuss the Silicon Valley bubble and the culture of social entrepreneurship yeah. that many companies in Silicon Valley enact. And I hadn't really actively thought about this in, until I read the book. Um, in particular, you discuss a lot Mark Zuckerberg's zeal for what he calls the hacker way. And, you know, maybe while it's it's well-intentioned, uh, you argue that this, this culture has produced a number of negative outcomes. So I was wondering if you could kind of describe that and then maybe pick up a bit on that uh, Milton Friedman and John Mackey, if I have his name. <laughs> Right, yeah, uh, the yeah. CEO of Whole Foods. The debate you outlined in the book. I really enjoyed that part. Yeah. So, um, gosh, yeah. I mean, we could go back to the late 1960s. A couple things to think about in the late 1960s, as you know, um, streets were on fire in Paris and Mexico City, and uh, you know, uh, and around the U.S. Uh, in the late 60s, we have the rise of an environmental movement and the sort of apex of a civil rights movement, and in both those cases. The activists involved um, saw an opportunity to put public pressure on companies, put public pressure on companies to desegregate their labor force, especially their management force in the case of civil rights, uh, and also put pressure on companies to try to behave in a way that would be less environmentally detrimental. This went hand in hand with efforts to create you know, legal and regulatory frameworks for both of those goals. Uh, and so it's not like anyone at that time said we can do one without the other. And there was no hard or false choice between putting public pressure on companies and putting legislative pressure or regulatory pressure or legal pressure on companies. Um, the, the, the issues were so urgent at that time. Now, it's also important to remember, like 1969, the Cuyahoga River catches on fire. The Cuyahoga River outside Cleveland catches on fire. Uh, and that started a debate in the United States that ultimately yielded the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, all uh, popping up between 1970 and 1972. Very short period of time. But in that period of time, we had fervent arguments, right? Richard Nixon, a Republican, was in office. uh, But we had fervent arguments in in the United States about how to address this environmental crisis. Um, Should we have market-based interventions? Should we have regulatory-based interventions? If we have regulatory-based interventions, what should be the scale of penalties? What should be the manner? What level of expertise? Should the EPA hire scientists? And should we trust those scientists' judgment? At no point did anyone say, you know, I don't think that Cuyahoga River is actually on fire, right? Hmm. The, it was entirely possible to have a rational debate in the United States over an environmental disaster because there was no time wasted on deniers, right? Now the whole world is on fire and we can't even start an argument about how to address it, hmm. right? Because we keep having to flow back. Given that context, one of the things that starts to happen in the 70s is libertarians say, you know what, we've just we're facing these same problems. Like we're not happy about the civil rights situation. We're not happy about discrimination. We're not happy about environmental degradation, but we need market interventions that can displace the state because we don't want the state doing all this. So they start constructing an idea of a responsible company, of a stakeholder-based company, one that doesn't just answer to the interests of shareholders but one that answers to a variety of constituents, neighbors, the country in general, labor forces, as well as consumers. And if you can construct that model of a company and and implant that in business schools, you can create an ideology of corporate social responsibility. So that starts in the 1970s, hits its apex by the 1980s and 90s as business schools suddenly become important. They really weren't important in the United States before that. Hmm. At that point, you have companies like Whole Foods, which if you're familiar with the United States, they're all over the United States. They're, they're a natural and organic grocery 
chain and quite successful. Uh, they're in every city and town in America at this point. Now owned by Amazon. Now owned by Amazon, <laughs> right? But for a long time, it was owned by this guy named John Mackey, who was kind of a proto-hippie from Austin, Texas, where I, I went to college. I, I, I knew of him for many years, and I shopped at the original Whole Foods when it was this tiny little garage of a store. Uh, and Mackey's idea the whole time was that um, his employees are not labor, they are not employees, they are partners, and that his company was devoted to uh, trying to make the world better, trying to make farming more sustainable and environmentally responsible and uh, making sure workers are treated better, et cetera, right? So, so that meant he, of course, sold his products at a premium price so that only the wealthy could afford them and generally only uh, wealthy people shop there for a, for a long time and even still. That said, he developed this idea, or at least he, he put into practice this idea that he was reading from a number of different scholars about stakeholder capitalism. Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winning economist, believed in the magic of the price system. And so he and Mackey started a big debate that ran in the pages of Reason magazine, a libertarian magazine in the United States. And they, they mapped out their debate where Friedman basically said, look, the price system is magical if you introduce any factors in there that sound political or or don't necessarily directly benefit the consumer, you're corrupting the magic of the price system. You're bringing the dirtiness of politics into the magic of the market. And of course, Mackey said, no, you know, we, there are other things more important. Now, my point of view is different from both of theirs, which is I don't want the muckiness of the market interfering on the magic of politics. So, so my position on this is that I'm suspicious of corporate social responsibility largely because I think it depoliticizes us. It makes us think that perhaps we can address the problems of the world, whether it's climate change or labor problems or anything else, by how we shop and what we drive rather than through you know, limitations on uh, pollution or on uh, mileage standards on automobiles, you know, important regulations that can actually make a difference in the macro. Uh, and our values can be fought out and argued about in the public sphere rather than through our own individual decisions and disconnected, atomized decisions. Anyway, that's a long <laughs> uh, dissertation within the book. But what it really comes down to how it applies to Silicon Valley is that Silicon Valley came up at a time when uh, faith in the state was waning or had waned almost completely. Silicon Valley was founded by men who believed in themselves almost completely and believed in their own benevolence and believed in their own omnipotence and through surveillance, omniscience, right? So mm. these these like these 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 supermen, these godlike men who would found these companies that would disrupt the world and and change everything. And Zuckerberg is among them. And and he and the the, the guys who founded Google and uh, and Elon Musk, at, you know, who, who who's trying to get us to Mars after um, you know creating an electric car that goes really fast. You know, these guys. <laughs> believe so deeply in their own rectitude and their own capabilities that they don't see any role for the state. They don't see any role for us as citizens mm. to argue out what sort of environmental system we would want or what sort of information ecosystem we would want or what sort of uh, limitations on data sharing we should want. Like th those things, they don't think that we have a stake in. They think they should be the ones deciding that. Uh, their engineers and their market forces should determine that. So to get away with it, to be able to get up in the morning, Zuckerberg convinces himself that he is improving the world. And he has since the beginning. And he's been very clear about this and very sincere about this. He's not in it to make money. It's easy to say that when you make that much money. <laughs> uh, but the fact is he does. He's not motivated by money. He's motivated by this idea that by connecting people through Facebook, everybody will treat each other better. Everybody will recognize each other's mutual humanity and and just be nicer and kinder to each other thousands of years of human history notwithstanding, uh, you know, he truly believes that if you remove friction from communicative systems, that people will be better to each other. I think we have ample evidence to the contrary, even in the past 36 months. Yeah. And I mean, that comes from, you know, just as you're mentioning, the quantification of social validation, if you want to put it that way, or all of the algorithmic filtering that's going on. Um, but I want to follow up on that and get into the idea of political campaigning and how Facebook right. embeds itself in campaigns. So we know that that's happened. And I mean, the political ad revenue, it's 
big in the States, but it's a small slice of yeah. Facebook's overall all, overall revenue, right? So do you think Facebook's push to get directly involved in politics is something that stems from this sense of corporate responsibility or something that's more profit-driven? Because right. it kind of seems like they're, they're at odds with each other. Yeah, I think it, it has more to do with the idea – Zuckerberg's idea that Facebook should matter everywhere, Mm. that it must be present everywhere, that it should matter everywhere. And since politics matter uh, and advertising matters, he wants wants political campaigns to be able to use Facebook as effectively as possible. So to do that, he has to maintain uh, neutrality among candidates, right? That's his position, and that's Facebook's position. So Facebook has been embedding... Uh, staff in major campaigns around the world for a few years now. Our friend Daniel Kreiss has documented this quite quite well. Uh, and, you know, in 2016, Facebook had staff in the Donald Trump campaign and in the Hillary Clinton campaign. It's pretty clear that the Donald Trump campaign worked well with the Facebook staff and listened to them quite carefully. And the Hillary Clinton campaign was a bit too arrogant for that and thought, well, we have this huge database system inherited from Obama 2012 and all of this rich data. We will just use our own homegrown system uh, to try to target voters and motivate them. And we see how well that worked. Uh, so the question, though, is, you know, look, in the United States, it's one thing to say we're going to work with the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee. In a, in a normal election, right? So if the election is between a Mitt Romney and a Barack Obama or a John McCain and a Barack Obama or a John Kerry and George W. Bush, right? Those are standard issue Democrats and Republicans. But in 2016, and this is what baffles me, right? So that, I mean, what I gave you before was just the explanation, which I think is that they, especially everyone who works at Facebook, especially Zuckerberg, wants Facebook to matter to everyone, right? It's much more than about the money. But here's the thing. In 2016, they decided to help the Donald Trump campaign, even though on the day he announced, Donald Trump said that Mexicans were rapists, that several months later, he wanted to stop all all migration, immigration of Muslims to the United States, right? He had made it clear where he stood on basic human rights issues, on basic issues of humanity and human decency, and yet they still helped him. Now, it's not enough to say... I'm going to help both sides, right? Because you're still helping a person who wants to do harm to people. In the Philippines election in 2016, they actively helped Rodrigo Duterte, even though Duterte made it very clear that he was going to unleash vigilante justice on the streets of the Philippines, that he was an authoritarian nationalist leader who was going to basically undermine the very concept of democracy in the Philippines. In 2014, they actively helped Narendra Modi even though Modi had overseen or turned his, his head away from pogroms against Muslims for years, right? He had been banned from traveling to the United States and Human Rights Watch has documented all of Modi's problems. I don't want to quite call them crimes, right? So these are bad people and Facebook decided to help them. So this is where the corporate social responsibility thing gets weird, right? So Zuckerberg wants Facebook to matter. He believes that if Facebook's everywhere, people will behave better. And he is willing to suspend his judgment about the Modi's and Duterte's and Trump's of the world for this larger promise of influence, of Facebook's influence, because he believes so deeply in Facebook's ability to ultimately make things better to the point where he he hugged Duterte when he visited India. I mean, like, it's stunning to me. I'm sorry, he helped Modi when he went to India. Or he hugged Modi when he went to India. How does he sleep at night when he helped Modi and Duterte and Trump? I'm not sure how that works. And he's never given me the time to ask him. Um, but it's a different level of responsibility. And it, ha- it has to do with hubris, right? He has so much hubris about this. But fundamentally, he does not want people to think of Facebook as a political thing. He wants it people to think of it as a neutral platform that will bizarrely engineer society, engineer global society into something called community. So he has this, you know, very positivistic sense of engineering. And yet when it comes to politics, he wants everyone to think of Facebook as being apolitical. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that, that interests me is there's so many different types of, you know, smaller communities than the larger one. You mentioned knitting and uh, things along those lines. But one of the things I'm interested in is how 
you have one space, one portal, one platform where all these different things are going on. And so one of the things you discuss in the book is um, looking at advocacy, particularly the ice bucket challenge, if, you know, seems like forever ago. But um, you write that the cause that makes the catchiest, cutest, or most clever Facebook campaign generates the most financial support. And when you think about, you know, you have the ice bucket challenge going on, you have political campaigning going on on the same platform. So do you think that that same type of logic applies across different types of campaigns and initiatives? Yeah. I mean, in general, Facebook's flattening out deliberation, squeezing Mm. it of all deliberative power, right? So the ice bucket challenge is important in my story because it had nothing to do with the disease it was trying to address. It had nothing to do with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, which was ostensibly the cause for which it was raising money. The ice bucket challenge, uh, many of the videos that traveled around Facebook said nothing about ALS, Mm. described Nothing about how people with ALS suffer or what the prospects for research or medical intervention are. There was no discussion, debate, knowledge imparted by that. And yet it was tremendously successful because it was a clever and cute gimmick. Well, is that how we want to fund medical research? I mean, perhaps ALS was the most important medical concern of 2014. Perhaps. I I doubt it was. Uh, not to minimize its awfulness and and not to minimize the importance of research on it. But why then? Why that much? Why that way? It didn't seem to make sense. I mean, we should be deciding how to apportion medical research funds through a deliberative process where, where informed people from the fields of medicine and science talk about the prospects for success, the overall impact on society, the number of people suffering from it, uh, the ways that we can build knowledge on on particular research methods. You know, that makes sense. But but to, to do it through Facebook, through a nice bucket challenge seemed to me to be uh, completely wrong and ultimately counterproductive to medical research overall. I mean, ever since then, every other foundation has been trying to replicate that buzz of of that. Now, what happens in politics is, of course, political ads, even on television and radio, don't lack deliberative heft either, right? They're, they're not much better. But on Facebook, you have the ability to mask where the ad comes from. You have the ability to so precisely tailor an ad that people outside that target don't see it. So um, imagine if I'm running for office against you, like we're running for city council or mayor. You'd probably win. Uh, Well, we'll see. But, (laughs) you know, but like I happen to know that um, there are 500 small business owners, like shopkeepers in our town, and they're very concerned about shoplifting. I just happen to know this or I'm guessing it at least. And I start like a week before the election running targeted Facebook ads at shopkeepers in our town saying, you know what? Michael is a shoplifter. I don't know if you knew this, but Michael's a shoplifter, right? And I just run these ads. They're ephemeral. They pop up on people's Facebook things and they go away. There's no way to tie it to me. You might never know that you're being called a shoplifter until it's way too late, you know? But I may have moved just a few dozen of those few hundred shop owners away from voting for you, and that could give me the edge, right? So there's no point at which... You can respond. There's no point at which you can even accuse me of calling you a shoplifter. There's no accountability for that ad. There's no point at which we can actually have a discussion about how to fight crime in our town, right? That doesn't happen. So what I see happening as we as we put more and more of our effort and time in Facebook is that everything gets flattened out into an instant sensation, um, into something that is attached to images, not sentences and paragraphs, uh, that everything is uh, meant to create a small level instantaneous emotional hit and a click. A click is a very easy reaction. And so Facebook, if you scroll through the newsfeed, you are more often than not feeling and not thinking, more often than not failing to hesitate, failing to think through the ramifications of your comments, of your clicks, failing even to, if you look at a, a post with a, with a lot of comments, failing even to scroll to earlier comments to see if someone else has said something close to what you want to say, right? Um, the very structure of Facebook limits 
our ability to argue, our ability to deliberate about important issues because of these sort of nested comments. It's it's a it's a crazy system. Yeah, I I agree. And, and you know, um, we've done some kind of pilot research looking at. Um, Brexit comments, and right. by a very, very loose criteria of deliberation, we had about 8% of those that would even, actually, not even deliberation, just having some sort of meaningful argument about Brexit. Right. So It's great for insults. Yeah, which is also what we find, more than, more than uh, <laughs> deliberation, for sure. Um, so that's looking at what campaigns are putting out. Right. right. But there's also that kind of back end of Facebook, which is all the data collection. And so that obviously brings into questions about privacy. Right. And in your chapter entitled The Surveillance Machine, you introduce the concept of the cryptopticon, which is obviously building on Foucault and, and Bentham's mm -hmm. idea of the panopticon. So can you kind of kind of outline what is the cryptopticon and how does it differ from the type of power exerted in the traditional panopticon? Yeah. We're, I mean, we're used to thinking about surveillance in terms of, you know, a central power putting up visible signs of surveillance, right? The camera on the wall, uh, the tower in the middle of the prison, um, the driver's license and passport office in Foucault's sense, right? That the instruments of state surveillance are obvious to us. And as Foucault argues, they discipline us. They convince us, perhaps without even articulating it, that we should conform, that, that the state has us in its sight all the time. I don't think that that's a bad argument or a bad observation, although I, I would argue that perhaps its effects are not as broad or profound as Foucault and many of his followers would uh, want to posit. I would say, though, that we are in a very different situation now where most of the instruments of surveillance are invisible or hidden, cryptic, which is why I stuck crypt on the front of Opticon, right? It's a <laughs> hidden system of surveillance. We are not supposed to know about cookies in our browsers, right? They're, that's why they're not obvious. And that's why we needed laws like the GDPR to inform us of their constant presence and activity. We are not supposed to know about state instruments of surveillance. We're not supposed to know about the latest cameras, the pinhole cameras, the cameras attached to badges uh, of officers at the airport. We're not supposed to know about biometric scanning instruments as we walk into football stadiums. We are not supposed to know about all of the ways that shops, you know, actual physical shops, not just Amazon, track our behavior, track our habits, create dossiers on us. If we knew, we would think a lot about it and we might adjust our behavior. We might object. We might ask to be treated more humanely. Um, but at least we would be reminded of those systems. Again, this is why we need a GDPR beyond uh, Western Europe, uh, beyond Europe, the European Union. Um, but you know what we have now is a system where we are not expected to conform. We are expected to reveal our niche interests and affiliations. Think about state security for a minute. What the United States wants in its state security system is not necessarily to get everyone to behave like loyal Americans. Uh, what it really wants is for those who are unlikely to be loyal or likely to create problems to reveal themselves. And they only reveal themselves if they have a level of comfort, if they're convinced they're not being watched. Uh, and if they do that, then the, uh, the state surveillance systems can track their social networks, can track their affiliations, uh, can start watching them more closely. It's a very different dynamic than what we imagine in a uh, you know 1984 type surveillance society, or even what the Stasi was doing in in East Germany. Uh, you know, with uh, which, by the way, I think the Stasi operated under both principles of a panopticon to try to you know constantly remind you you're being watched, but also a cryptopticon through which you could never be sure you were being watched, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't know which neighbors are snitching on you, right? So the neighbors that were snitching on you or the family members who were snitching on you were cryptic, whereas the uh, towers, the watchtowers everywhere were were obvious. The, you know, the officers on the street were obvious. Um, so given that, I think it's much more important that we think about our, our system of surveillance as one in which, through which we are not supposed to understand it or even know it exists. And therefore, as citizens, we should strive to understand it, to reveal it, to fight back against it uh, and to demand of it our best interests, not the best interests of Amazon or Google or Facebook or MI5. Yeah, and that that leads very well into my final two questions, which have to do with uh, about moving forward. And so, you know, you just advocated, for example, uh, 
somehow protesting against that cryptopticon. And, uh, you know, one way to do that is to delete Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been obviously a sort of a little movement that hasn't been too reflected in uh, in their numbers, judging by their latest quarterly right, report. Right. But, but uh, you know, um, but then my question is, what about Google? And what about the push notifications to our phones and the way that apps are so ingrained in our everyday lives? In, in the book, you call this the operating systems of our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was wondering, you know, how, how do we address that where even if you drop Facebook, we're so integrated with our phones and the overall platformization of the Internet? So, yeah. so, so how do you – at the level of citizens, how do you recommend moving forward? Okay. So uh, back in 2011, I published a book called The Googleization of Everything. So I finished that book in 2010. Before the Android platform took over the world, and I, I regret this, right? I wish, I wish I had waited a couple of years and paid a lot more attention to Android um, because Android is in many ways the most important thing Google has ever done. Maybe YouTube. And I actually didn't write enough about YouTube in that book either. Still a good book. But so here's the thing. If you look at look at what Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Apple and to a lesser degree Amazon want over the next 20 years – they want to be they want to be the winner they want to be the one company that manages all your data whether that's data coming out of your car or your shoes or your eyeglasses or your pacemaker uh, or your insulin pump uh, or your refrigerator right whatever is going to have data flowing through it Facebook Google Amazon Apple Microsoft they want to be the company managing that data they want to be the operating system of your life. They've already worked through being the operating system of your phone and of your computer. That's done. That's locked into place. The real battle is over this flow of data in real life, right? There was no such thing as cyberspace. There was no such thing as the internet anymore. We are all nodes in a networked flow of data uh, and data flows through and across and in all of us at this point. And it will get deeper and thicker in years to come. So who will win that race? That is the question. And that's why each of these companies is trying to ingratiate us to it so that we, when we see the logo, we don't recoil in fear. It's also why they are trying to embed themselves in our lives to such a degree. Now, I mentioned WeChat before, the most important and largest social network system in China. In China, WeChat is the operating system of people's lives. Through the WeChat application, you can do all sorts of things in your daily life, banking operations. You can reserve and check out library books. You can make medical appointments. You never have to leave WeChat. WeChat does everything Twitter does, everything Facebook does, everything Instagram does, everything Google does. It's one app. It's everything. And it still sits on a device, right? It doesn't yet sit in your eyeglasses or mm-hmm. in a chip in your brain, although that may come soon. So if you're if you're Mark Zuckerberg and you're sitting back and you're looking over the next 10 years and you're thinking, where's my competition coming from and where can't I do business yet? Well, you're looking at China and you're saying, well, I, you know, I need to get into China before WeChat is everything. But while well, there's still a chance to get in before WeChat locks everything out. And so he's trying that. But the other thing he's worried about is that WeChat will go global. You know, what happens if people beyond China who are beyond the diaspora, the Chinese diaspora, start using WeChat? What if WeChat starts coming in 100 different languages the way that Facebook does? Won't people gravitate toward that? That's one of the reasons he's trying to build out Facebook Messenger with all these mini apps in there. If you open up Facebook Messenger, you might see some little banking apps or a Starbucks app and so forth at the bottom, uh, largely because they're trying to make it so that you habitually turn on Facebook Messenger as you live your life, as you navigate around. Uh, it's it's the attempt to become like WeChat. So that's the project for the next five to 10 years at Facebook and through many of these companies. It's why Amazon wants you to buy the Alexa thing to sit in your house. So there's constant surveillance in your house and Amazon becomes the operating system of your life. It's why Apple's doing the same thing with its speaker system. It's why Microsoft has been trying to get people to put Xboxes in everyone's houses. Microsoft's probably doing the worst on this uh, of those companies, but they're still doing all right. Um, you know, and they ha- I'm sure they have other strategies for the operating system of your life. So had I thought of this idea of the operating system of your life, I would have appended it as the final chapter of Googleization of everything. As a result, I had to put it in this book, uh, <laughs> which is probably more timely. Um, but yeah, this is my... Uh, one of my great concerns is that this is what these companies are after. Do we want one company to have that much control over our lives? What are the implications of that? Even if that company is not Facebook, even if that company is Google, even if that company is Apple, uh, what are the implications of that? 
What are the implications to the global economy, to advertising, to journalism, to democracy, to basic human dignity, to state surveillance? We have not even begun cataloging what the world would look like in a monopoly or duopoly situation where all of the data from our pacemakers and our automobiles go through one company. Mm. So I'd like to get people to start thinking about that. Now, here's the thing. My book ends without much of a, an agenda, without a menu of policy options that are powerful to address this. I conclude the book by saying I wish that Canada and the US and Mexico and Brazil would adopt a GDPR. That would be nice. We need better data protection. It's a necessary but insufficient response. I would also like to see competition regulators in Europe and antitrust regulators in the US uh, push back at Facebook quite harshly. I don't think Facebook ever should have been allowed to buy WhatsApp or Instagram. But now that they have, I think it's worth debating whether those should be broken off so that those pools of data are separate from Facebook data and so that there's actual competition in the market. If people prefer Instagram, which I do as an experience, and my daughter does as well, and many people do, um, we should be able to use Instagram without feeding the Facebook monster uh, and maybe have Instagram grow into something that might compete with Facebook. That would be a little bit healthier. But again, that doesn't solve the larger problem uh, of its effect on democracy, its inability to foster deliberation, the fact that we live through it by the billions. And I don't have a quick answer to that because there is no quick answer to that. And I'm willing to say... Even if we did those two things, we broke off WhatsApp, we broke off Instagram, we broke off Oculus Rift from Facebook, and we had a GDPR in most of the world, Facebook would still be this much of a problem or almost this much of a problem. It would still be huge. It would still be growing. It would still be powerful. It would still be in the running to be the operating system of our lives, and we should still be worried about it. And the situation in Myanmar gets no better, even if antitrust and competition regulators crack down on Facebook, right? So given all of that... I want to say I don't know, or I actually want to say there is no easy solution to the problems Facebook raises. And I do that, number one, because I actually believe that this monster is almost impossible to slay. But number two, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that there are some really smart people out there who read my book and say, well, he's wrong. I think we can address Facebook, uh, maybe through competition, maybe through technology. I doubt it, but certainly possibly through policy. And these really smart people think up these strategies that I'm incapable of thinking. And that in five years, when you talk to me next, I can say, oh, you know, anti-social media, forget that book. It was totally wrong. I was wrong about everything. And they fixed all the problems. And never mind. That would be great if this book were useless in five years. Well, that's how um, science evolves, right? And uh, how we continue to address these uh, these challenges. But I do think that the the book is a great sort of um, collection of really all the different spheres that Facebook and other social platforms do enter our lives and the kind of implications of that. So I think you precipitated my last question, which is right. about policy right. uh, responses. But um, I'm very much looking forward to reading the uh, next book in, in five years. <laughs> and hopefully uh, we, we will be able to say that some of these outcomes were were, were wrong. But um, Dr. Fide Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time out. This has been uh, this has been great. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. This is wonderful. I've just been speaking with Dr. Siva Vadhyanathan, professor in media studies at the University of Virginia. The book we've been discussing in this episode is called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, and it's published by Oxford University Press. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Social Media and Politics podcast. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter at SMNP Podcast. I've got a ton of great material coming your way throughout the fall, so please make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to get those episodes directly into your feed. But for now, I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Copenhagen. See you next time. Hold up. 